What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Masters of Community podcast. My name is David Spinks, founder of CMX and VP of Community at Bevy. Each week, I bring you an expert who will help you take your community to the next level. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey, everyone. I just want to give you a quick heads up that my new book, The Business of Belonging, How to Make Community Your Competitive Advantage, is now available anywhere where you can buy books on Amazon and any bookstore. It is the complete collection of everything I've learned from the last 13 years and how to build community for your business and all of the frameworks and models that the CMX team has developed to teach businesses how to do this work. It's all in here. I really appreciate all your support. You can go and order it now. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the show. I'm going to kick off by once again thanking somebody who dropped a review for this podcast. Today is Staring is Polite. That's my friend, John Howard. Thank you, John, for writing this review. He said, inspiring and practical. David is one of the best in the world as a founder of CMX. Love how we'll talk about frameworks, but also get into the wise and practical details. So you leave with a few practical things you can use yourself. Really appreciate the podcast review, John. Remember, if you drop a review, we'll be reading out one of these on the podcast every week. And they're a huge help for getting this podcast out into the world. So we really appreciate it. Today, we have a really amazing interview. One, I'm still buzzing from it. We just wrapped up. This one's with Shelly Omelade-Bell, who is the founder of Black Girl Ventures. She has a roller coaster of a journey that she's been through as a founder, as an entrepreneur, as an employee, as a community builder. She was previously a private eye. She worked in consulting, She just kind of had a range of different jobs. She ended up getting fired from two jobs in a row and was kind of soul-searching and figuring out what she wanted to do until she found some success launching a clothing line that was called Made by a Black Woman that really took off. And then that led to more opportunities and more social capital, which is a topic we discuss in this interview, to ultimately start essentially an event where Black and Brown women could pitch their products, pitch their companies, And then people can vote. And now ultimately, they vote with their dollars. So they vote for who they want to win. They vote with their dollars. And that funding goes to the entrepreneurs. Black Girl Ventures has grown exponentially over the years. And now many different people can host these kinds of programs. She's worked with Google and Nike and Visa. And I mean, just you'll hear in the episode, she's just an incredible energy, a really incredible community leader who shares all of her thoughts on how do you create access and social capital for people? How do you create a real sense of community? And how do you scale community? How do you build systems that takes the thing you built, the access that you built, and be able to scale beyond just you as an individual? So tons of inspiration from this one. You're going to love it. Let's dive in. Omi, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm very excited to chat. We've been connecting on the Twitters for a while and following the work that you're doing. And I think it's just such an incredible example of building community in the VC space and building community for underrepresented groups. So lots to learn today. Why don't we just start, if you could just give everyone a quick intro and a background on yourself and how you came to start Black Girl Ventures. Yeah, I'm Shelly Omilade Bell, but you can call me Omi. Owe me like you owe me money. All right. (laughs) I um, (laughs) It's an easy way to get people to remember it. That's good. Okay. So prior to starting BGV, I lived a lot of lives. Black Girl Ventures. Mm. I I lived a lot of lives. I 
I was a K through twelve teacher. I worked for the Patent and Trademark Office. I called myself a private eye at one point. Different story for a different day. Mm. I was always the bad employee. I'm the person that wants to solve things that nobody wants to solve. I'm the person in a meeting that's raising my hand. Like, remember you said that one thing? Any date deadlines when we're gonna activate that? <laughs> <laughs> and then they're like, the people come up to you after the meeting later, like, I'm so glad you asked that. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, I was thinking the same thing. He like, but you didn't say anything, so you left me out of the drive. But I was always <laughs> that person. And so I was running like a large contract for a workforce development agency. And my boss didn't like some decisions that I made, so he let me off. And so I did for a year because I was always a builder. I initially was building a community via like poetry, performance poet. I'm a performance poet. And so uh, bringing people into different circles to write together, that's where I really learned how to build community and what it meant to not only build a group of people, but how to sustain it. Because I think that's the key. Like a lot of times mm. people will bring a bunch of people together and then they become a community and then they can't figure out how to monetize it. And it's not sustainable because they don't have the capacity, all kinds of things. So I learned a lot of that through doing poetry. So fast forward, I told my fiance at the time that I wanted to start a business and he did not think that was the best idea. It's like, <laughs> we're going to start a family, you know, that's unstable. And so I thought, well, I'm going to be a wife. I've never done that before. Maybe this is what I have to do. Like, maybe I am supposed to just kind of trust what he says and compromise and collaborate and what other C words you can come up with. So I went to work for a patent search firm because I worked for the patent office before. And in my job, I hated it every day, but I thought I was faking it really well. And then my boss, best boss I've ever had, just came and said, hey, you know what? I think you're amazing, but this is not for you. Mm -hmm. So he laid me off. He gave me a decent like separation package, but I was devastated. So I did the only thing that a person who's gotten laid off back to back could possibly do. I went home and I called California Psychics <laughs> because <laughs> I had to figure out what was going on with my life, right? So I'm like, what is happening right now? Why am I losing jobs? It is not me. And so the person told me, when you find the thing you want to do, the money will come. Oh, and by the way, you're not going to be with that guy. So then oh, two months, <laughs> right. But then two months, my entire world flipped upside down. Like I got disengaged, unengaged, whatever the proper term is. Okay. <laughs> I uh, threw all my furniture out of the living room. And I started building my own furniture. And I said to myself, I'm going to start a business. I'm not going back to work for anyone that can come in and tell me you're laid off because I don't like that one thing you did or you're not getting this fast enough or toxic em environments, things like that. I was like, I'm not going to do that. And so I was just trying everything I possibly could. One of the things that I tried was a tent. So I built a tent in my living room. A tent? Yes. And I rented it out on Airbnb. Okay. You built a tent in your living room? Yes. <laughs> just an everyday tent. is like a child's tent. I'm picturing like couch cushions with a sheet over it. Like a teepee. Okay. And this is before the teepees, the kid teepees at the market. Right, right. You were uh, ahead of the teepee game. Yeah. And there's still not many adult teepees. That, I actually, I don't even know that I've seen adult teepees for sale. They're mainly mass producing the children, mm -hmm. children's ones. Mm -hmm. So my mom helped me like put the, like the bedding together out of, Ikea couch pillows. And we put it all together, set it up, staged it, and it actually was pretty great. So I had so many people that wanted to stay that I had to actually shut it down. 
So, because I quickly found out after I let one woman come and say that I didn't want people sleeping in my living room in a TV. <laughs> but I, you know, but my thoughts were aspirational, right? Like my thoughts were, okay, if you're a single mom and you don't have an extra room, you can't make money off of Airbnb. Mm-hmm. So what could you do? Okay, you can have a CP da-da, in your living room. Then I'm like, okay, well, if you're a woman and you're traveling, how can we create safe spaces for women? Because traveling as a poet, men could like say from the stage, I need somewhere to sleep tonight. And then women would be like, you can stay with me. And they'd be like, yay. Well, I'm a woman poet traveling. I can't do that, right? Mm-hmm. So my thought was like, how could I franchise this and scale it out and like, you know, create a community around it and women helping women. And all that was great. But I quickly found out what safe space is because having this woman in my living room, living in the CP, she had things going on. She was talking to my children. She was crying. And I'm like, okay, this is too much. And so I quickly realized that if we all walk into a building and it is structurally sound and technically it is a quote unquote safe space, but safe space actually means safe people. And the more safe people that are surrounding in a community, the more safe it can be. That comes from core values. We'll talk about it in a little bit later. So here I am, okay? I'm like, what am I going to do? This is not working. I pivot and I start thinking of all the skills I have. And in a previous job, I learned to print t-shirts, like uh, screen printing. And so I decided, okay, haha, I'm going to do that. So my first, <laughs> my first t-shirt line was the LGBT line. It sucked. Nobody bought it, right? So I'm like, okay. So I'm on the phone with a printer I was working with, and I said, you know what? It's made by a Black woman. I'm going to put that on a shirt. So I literally went to the computer, designed the Made by a Black Woman logo to pattern after the Made in America logo, Mm -hmm. put it on a shirt, and everybody loved it. Mm. So it took off. And my mom gave me some of her retirement money. I used my tax return to buy my own machines because I knew I needed leverage in case I needed to get access to capital later. So I invested the 10K my mom gave me from her retirement into this business. And from there, we started vending up and down the East Coast. I started printing for myself and other people to cut costs and to get, to make money. And soon I landed on doing like more like print merchandise for people and started doing orders for like Amazon and Google. Like, But all of this came through building community. All this came through relationships. Mm. And so my business was leveling up. And then the news came out. Black women are not getting access to capital. Black women have started businesses at six times the national average yet receiving less than 1% of venture capital. Black and brown women are the fastest growing entrepreneurs in the country. And I'm like, okay, well, I think I can do something about this. Again, builder mentality, community mentality. I said, I'm going to bring together a bunch of people in a house. I, and so I put it up on meetup.com. 30 people showed up. I cooked all the food myself. It was a brunch. They paid some capital to get in. I ran the whole thing like a poetry slam. Like four women got up. They had three minutes to pitch their business. The audience asked questions Mm -hmm. and um, gave feedback. And then we voted with marbles and coffee mugs. If you like that person's pitch, you put your marble in their coffee mug. Nice. And from there, we gave the mission fee back out to the winner. And that was the start of what is now a multi-million dollar supported nonprofit who has funded over 270 women founders. And we have efforts across about 15 cities now. We have our founders represent about 10 million in revenue and over 3,000 jobs. We work with the largest companies on the planet. We work with Nike, Visa, Experian, PayPal, 
like some pretty amazing people who are believers, pretty amazing foundations like the Ewing Marion, Ewing Marion Kaufman Foundation and the Knight Foundation. It's been an exciting ride building this community. That was a very exciting ride. I feel like I was just on a roller coaster of your life. <laughs> that is incredible. And I can relate on some levels too on getting let go or getting fired. I got fired as well nine years ago from my first director of community job. And the next thing I started after I had lost all confidence and was depressed for a few months was CMX. So similarly, like the thing that I've been doing now for eight years came out of being fired and then just seeing where that took me. I didn't speak to any psychics. I probably should have done that. I might have sped up the recovery process. <laughs> right, right. I'm very woo-woo. So like, I'm intuitive all the way. Even in building, all that I'm building is all about intuition, checking in with self, like reading the moment, feeling through it, like communicating with people, communing mm. with people. I love that. Yeah, me too. Increasingly so over the years, definitely since I moved to California from New York. New York, not the most woo-woo place. California, mm. more woo-woo. <laughs> yes. Well, so I have a thousand questions already, but okay. So you went from this like small pitch competition to this massive program. And you said something very early on in your story, which was the challenge is usually not starting up the community, but sustaining it over time. And I've had a lot of conversations recently about what does it mean to find community market fit? How do you know? How do you start a community? So I'm curious, what was your experience from that first event? Like, did you just know that there was fit? Like, and how did you know? And then what were the keys to sustainably growing and engaging that community after that first event? It's interesting because I never had a second thought Mm. about it in terms of like me creating it. Like, the idea of like, would people get together and give money to founders? So eventually we got a partnership with Google. And so I couldn't charge people to come into Google. So I switched the model to be vote with your dollars, which is what we have today. So we have our own tech software that handles the voting and the donating. So that came out of this as well. So Mm. now I'm a tech founder. I would say that the many... Okay, wait, let me go back. So in building the community, I knew there was a need and I know I had a very simple solution. So I think like sometimes we think that like there's all these complex things needed or multiple things needed or bunches of things needed. And I was kind of thinking that at first too. And if somebody said to me like, hey, just focus on the one thing. There's a book called The One Thing. Mm-hmm. I'm not a one thing person. Let me be clear. <laughs> it doesn't I'm sound like two, it. <laughs> I'm a two or three thing person. Yeah. I can't focus on one thing at a time. I Like two things is my minimum. Uh-huh. But what I learned is that while you don't have to only do one thing, you do have to only do one thing for a period of time. Mm. And so while I was building my business and also kind of taking off with this partnership with Google with BGV, I had to make a decision. And I decided that I would give Black Girl Ventures three months. And if it didn't pop off in three months, I was not going to do it. I was going to focus on my print shop and just be a printer forever. Mm. (laughs) So I said, I'm going to put this to the side. I lowered my income a little bit because I was solely focused on the contract I had with Google. And then I was like, I'm just going to focus on building BGV. And when I gave it all of my energy is when it appreciated, right? So like what you appreciate, Mm. appreciates. Mm -hmm. I heard somebody say once. And so me giving it that energy, that energy came back in people and growth. So in the beginning, it was, I know there's a problem that I have a simple solution for. And that I know it's going to mean engaging people. I've always been good at engaging people because poetry helps you run those reps. So 
I call it like sets and reps, right? So being on stage for multiple nights in a year, mm. you can now be on stage in front of anyone, honestly. Like, because you're doing the energy work of guiding the crowd when you're hosting. Yeah. So when you're hosting a poetry event, or any event for that matter, you got to get up on stage right after whoever just left the stage, which means that you're left with whatever energy they left. And in that case, you're the one who has to actually do something about that. So if somebody just did like a poem about their grandmother and it was sad and then everybody in your room is now sad. Now I had to get up on stage and like, hey, let's get it. You know, hey, y'all yeah. throw out a joke, do something. Right, like working that muscle of building having access to attention, but not stopping at having the attention, actually moving toward the commune is what I, I think I would call it. Communing with people instantly. Like that is what actually helped me learn how to build community in any direction. Now, when it came to sustaining it, I had to think of a business model, which is hard because when it comes to community, people are just want to lead or have conversations and discussions. And it's hard to charge the community for what they're giving you, right? Mm -hmm. That's not usually the most sustainable <laughs> way to go about it. So I learned from eBay and PayPal. So at the beginning of eBay and PayPal, right, the way they built PayPal up was they interrupted the flow of eBay with the PayPal technology. So it would be like, okay, we got this platform, but now you got to buy it on the thing you're buying, you got to buy it on PayPal. And then everybody got used to the transactions and used to how it worked. And I was like, okay, we have money transactions going on here. I'm using some other kinds of software to do it, or I'm just trying to figure out how I can make people, how people can engage using all types of tools. I was pulling things from online. I was piecing it together. And what I decided was everything that was raised, we would take a percentage. Mm -hmm. And so we started, at first it was 20%, now we take 30%. So on the back end, we actually have a revenue model behind helping a community. Another piece that was helpful and has been helpful in sustaining is not creating a community that is one to many, but creating a community that is many to many. So this is not the Shelly Bell bandwagon. <laughs> BGV is not that, even though like I do have that, I have fans and followers and all that. But it was important for me to be a container such that if I bring them into the space, they can then commune with each other. And through communing, I can always introduce something that drives profit. But if they're not communing, I can't introduce something that drives profit because it's not going to sustain itself. Love it. So a few things. One, I love the what you appreciate appreciates. I'm definitely going to be referencing that. It's something we talk a lot about on this podcast. When I'm talking to other community builders, it's like a lot of people try to launch something, but unless they feel a genuine motivation to keep showing up and keep putting their energy into it, there's not going to be any energy coming out of it. It's, it's like if the leader is putting energy into it, then others see that and they want to put their energy into it as well. But if you're not doing it, then they have no reason to do it as well because they're like, the leader is not even putting energy into this. Why should I? So it sounded like there was a switch there for you of, you know, this was like an interesting kind of side project, a one-off event, and you had to sort of take a leap to say like, I'm actually going to put all or most of my energy into this thing, moving away from the t-shirts and actually invest in this thing, even though I imagine at that time, it probably didn't feel like a huge business opportunity. It was like a small one-off cute event where you're putting marbles and mugs. You probably didn't know at that time what it would become, did you? Oh my goodness. Had you asked me in 2016, 
whether or not I thought I was going to be on a Nike billboard. <laughs> I would have looked at you like you had three heads. Yeah. Like this, <laughs> I had no idea what it was going to become. I did know though that there was something. Mm. And I think a lot of builders feel this way. It's like, there's something here. I just need to land on it. I just need to figure it out. And part of it was diversifying. So at first it was because the name of it was Black Girl Ventures. A lot of people who were not Black didn't think that they could be a part of it. Mm -hmm. And so I had to do some work around that. So I'm a problem solver, like I think most builders are. But one of the things is like not looking at the problems on the surface, but knowing where the systematic pieces of that need to be solved. So I'll give an example. Like when I was doing my print shop, some of my clients would always order late. Like mm -hmm. they know that every year that they're going to have to do this event but they want to order two weeks ahead of time, mm -hmm. a million items, right? And I'm like, come on, y'all. We need more time than this. And so I started pressing my team to move faster. Mm -hmm. Okay, I need you to print faster. I need you to print faster. And I'm pressing some of the manufacturers to like, can you get it to me quicker? Can you get it? And I kept saying like, we're not moving fast enough. And then finally, I was like, wait a minute. Let me step back from this for a moment. It's not that we are not moving fast enough. It's that swag is nobody's job. It only lands on someone's desk. So we should just consume all of the duties for it. Like, we should just assume all of the duties, I mean, for it. So we became the swag department. Mm -hmm. So now you wasn't thinking about your event that you do every year, but I was thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Now I could send you things for you to be prepared, right? right? And now I immediately solved your problem and I made your life easier, which means now I get more money, right? So I think that, like, when I think about community, it's like, Community is just, it can be a great gathering of people unless you have all agreed that there's a problem that needs to be solved or you are showcasing that there's a problem that needs to be solved that this community coming together can solve. Mm -hmm. So moving from, at first it was just Black women talking to Black women. And I'm like, we're not going to move the needle on society this way, even though I do think that affinity groups are important. So I want to know that. But I realized that I wasn't going to move the needle for Black and Brown people it was just us talking to us. So I created a tagline that says, everyone can attend, but black and brown women will win. To <laughs> send a signal out like, hey, anybody can come, right? Then I moved into having it WeWork, which was a more a space that was already diversified. So mm -hmm. I just moved into the place that was already right with the community that could engage in order to build the followers, the fans, and more community for Black Girl Ventures. And that clicked for everyone, and then that worked. And That's, then I could work on further messaging and deeper decks and things like that. Right. And so just to clarify too, so the entrepreneurs who pitch at the competition are Black and Brown women, but anyone can come and attend and participate in the community and support the entrepreneurs. 100%. So now we have, we focus on capital, capacity, and community. For capital, we have this program, which is the BGV Pitch Program. And it's a program. So we coach them ahead of time and then they pitch and then the audience every now audience means viewers everywhere mm. can actually vote with your dollars for the pitch that you favor so you can watch the show or you can go to raiseify.co and you can see the live competitions and you can actually go look at the different videos mm. and you can vote for whoever you think is best with varying dollar amounts if you right. want to give ten dollars twenty dollars a hundred dollars we've had somebody win from an anonymous donation, get $100,000 for a three-minute video. Oh, my God. Pitch. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing. And so now we also have a fellowship program because, okay, so going to scaling and sustainability, right? So when the pitch competition got popular, so became popular, so many people wanted us to come to their city. 
Mm-hmm. Can you come to my city and do the pitch? Can you come? And I said, you know what? I can't. I'm going to need to give this away. Mm-hmm. One of the things that around like community building, I don't know if people think about is like, sometimes we hold so tight to what we think the process is that's proprietary or what we think the point of the community is. And sometimes that's a detriment to the community for growth. Sometimes we just have to give our model away. Totally. What we think is the point. Just give it away. And so people thought I was crazy. Yeah. I was like, no, I'm just going to teach everybody to do crowdfunded pitch competitions. I say that all the time. It's like the only way to scale community is to give up control. Yes. 100%. (laughs) It is because it's not about you, right? So I decided that I would train everybody how to do crowdfunded pitch competitions. People are like, don't do that. You got to give up your idea, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, whatever. If everybody started doing crowdfunded pitch competitions, I will have made an immense amount of change in the world and I can back up and go do something else in my life, right? Also, if they're using your platform, you're generating income from that. Exactly. See what I'm saying, David? Now, see, you get me. I get you. (laughs) So, but then the pandemic hit. Right. So we had a family foundation, the UN Marion Kaufman Foundation, that was Mm -hmm. one of our first believers in the scale of the community. So I decided I would recruit 25 women from five different cities and train them on how to do the pitch competition and then guide them. So I would create mini BGVs everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. And charter chapters where they fully understood what the assignment was and how to do everything. And we would back it with us thinking about our scale, right? Mm -hmm. We brought them to DC, trained everybody on like the initial steps. We then big in Houston, launched big in Philly and then the pandemic hit. Mm -hmm. And the quarantine shut Perfect timing. Yep. The quarantine shut down our launches. Yeah. So from there, we quickly pivoted to virtual, which actually was a benefit in a way because it allowed, it allowed us to serve way more people in a, actually a more efficient manner. That's been the flip side for everyone, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, all right, we can't do the in-person intimate stuff, but now anyone can participate in any of these events. It doesn't have to be location-based. One of the keys, though, was still getting people together. Mm-hmm. So it was like, yes, we're all virtual, but we launched these Wednesday co-working sessions mm-hmm. where you could just hop on and work together. And because everybody was dealing with the same thing in terms of quarantine and uh, homeschooling and things like that, we never they were sharing so much information. They were sharing resources on where to get funding. They were just workshopping each other's things. They were sharing their screens and going through pitch deck. Like they were doing so much to help each other keep their businesses the same. Yeah. I'm curious on that. Like, In the world of business, sometimes or often when building community, there's kind of this question of, does everything have to drive revenue for the business? Like, Are there things that you can or should be doing that may not be revenue driving, but you know they're good for the business and they're good for the community? And sounds like things like office hours or co-working, that wasn't things that would drive revenue directly for your business, but you knew that they were really important and valuable to your community at that time. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily frame it that way. What I would say is that like costs, you have direct and indirect costs. Mm -hmm. I would say you have direct and indirect drivers of revenue Mm -hmm. because revenue comes from relationships. All money comes from relationships. Mm -hmm. And so while these are not like you're going to charge a fee and the people get in to get this every single thing you do, you're still driving revenue. Right. Because this is an indirect way of driving revenue because you're building the trust. And the trust is what brings the revenue. The revenue doesn't necessarily come from the actions you took or the offering that you gave. It absolutely comes from the trust. It comes from the affinity. It comes from the belief in what you're doing as a community and that there's belonging. 
the revenue comes from belonging. So any ways that you can create belonging, what may feel like, you know, something indirectly, mm-hmm. you're going to be able to drive revenue. Yeah, I know. I agree. I think like the hardest part for those of us who build community for a living is making the business case for indirect impact on revenue. Like even if intuitively people know, especially in today's world where everything is tracked and you have your funnel and you have a lot of access to data that we've never had before, there's kind of this expectation that if you're going to invest in something, you should be able to measure it. And this is what what the big brands get is that they have to double down all of the awareness and visibility that they can. And a lot of times I think that there's this uh, really interesting kind of tone of humility in community builders. Mm-hmm. Whereas like, if I'm trying to drive revenue, then I can't build community. Or mm-hmm. if I'm focused on a profit, then I'm not having the integrity and I'm not right. building a safe space. It's a true battle with capitalism when it comes to being a builder because you want to be an empathetic leader. Like you are an empathetic leader. You want to keep people safe on top of you got to survive. And I think it's just a matter of like, again, reframing how you think about it. The more good you do, the more money you make, the more money you make, more good you do. And if you're thinking about it that way, then while the systems that be are not always the most favorable systems, you are a catalyst for good. You can be an additive, like substantive piece of society. And I think, but you got to be thinking about how you sustain in multiple ways, even in capacity, even if we're not just directly talking about, you know, profit driving, your capacity as a leader has to be there. You got to figure out where you tap out. You got to figure out the boundaries, unless your goal is to be a martyr. And these are decisions that you have to make early on in community building. My goal is systems change, mm. not by my death. Mm. Like my, I, my goal is not systems change by my death. Mm-hmm. All right? I want to see the systems change while I'm alive. Yeah. And I want my vision to be able to plant itself and grow the forest of potential opportunities for change. And in that case, the money is the water for the seed. It's just a tool. So you have to wrap your head around the difference between like humility that kind of like takes you out of driving the necessary sustainability uh, measures. I love that. And I just want to ask a couple of clarifying questions for people who want to better understand the specifics of your path. How long were you running the event yourself before you started? You decided to start uh, franchising it out essentially to others. Yeah. For about four, no, two years, I guess, because we started in at the end of 2016. Mm-hmm. We started the franchising piece in 2018. Well, we started actually like scaling 2018. We got the capital to do the chapters 2019. Mm-hmm. So about three years in, but I'm a scale person, yeah. you know. So I also would say like. Everything I'm doing, I'm thinking about how can I make it bigger. And mm-hmm. that, not all builders are responsible for thinking that way or do think that way. You have to do what feels best for you, but also be mindful of not limiting yourself. And that's a hard balance um, for for people who want to be empathetic and humble. Mm-hmm. It can be hard to strike that balance. So it took me about three years before I actually started doing it, but I was thinking about it way before. Yeah. Yeah. Understandable. Yeah. So, okay. So a couple of years, how often were you doing the events? Over those two years? Yeah. So quarterly, I started doing, well, in DC only, I was doing them quarterly. Okay. Once I moved to work with Google, I started doing them like more frequently, like maybe every few months. Right. Got it. And was it all self-funded? Did you ever raise money for it? I raised money for it. 
different th- again relationships. Mm-hmm. Bumble, the dating app, was one of also one of our first believers. AARP was and this is even before I got my first six figure grant. They were giving us five thousand, ten thousand, like fifteen thousand dollars to sustain. And then a lot of great community partners that would allow us to use the space. Mm-hmm. Like Make Offices was one that allowed us to be a part of their space. Pivotal Labs, mm-hmm. which is a tech company, allowed us to use their space. And in the use of their space, they would sometimes cover the catering. Oh, all great. I needed was a space. It's a good deal. Yeah, yeah. all I needed was space. And like a lot of community builders out there, like you had the vision. All you need is somebody to give you the space. Totally. And you can take advantage of the opportunity. Yeah. So that's really interesting. And it segues into another topic of what I've heard you talk about social capital and how social capital is the key to unlocking financial capital. And your entire community is built on this premise that Black women, Black and brown women don't have access to the same capital. They're not funded. Entrepreneurs aren't as supported in this community. But you were able to break through that. And I imagine that is kind of where your philosophy around social capital really comes into play. So can you explain that concept of social capital and how that helped you access financial capital? Yeah, social capital is just your network, the strength of your network, right? So you may have a network of people that you uh, work at a job with or go to school with, but they actually don't have any power to drive. They may not have any power to drive certain things. They may not have be able to float you $10,000 right quick. You may not know anybody that can do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they may not be able to give you great business advice because nobody around you has ever grown a business. So just being surrounded by people with resources and access and the capital, but there's more forms of capital. It depends on what you need for your business. It could be farmland. It could be machines. It could, But, but knowing people who know people who can get you things or who could help you learn access to knowledge. If you don't know what you don't know, you find it out through people. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, there's Google, but if you don't know what you're Googling for, then you also cannot find what you don't know, right? A lot of it. Also, Google shows you what everyone else can also find, but usually the access comes in what's not showing up in Google, right? It's the things that others can't find. I love that. Google shows you what everybody else can also find. Ah. I'm going to use that. That's so good. Because, (laughs) you know, sometimes people will tell founders like, oh, you asking me that or people who are trying to get started in tech. Oh, you're asking me that. Just Google it. And it's like, Google's going to tell me what everybody else is telling me. I'm coming to you. I mean, what everybody else can see. Mm -hmm. I'm coming to you because you obviously know things that Google can't tell me Mm. because it's word of mouth. Right. Yeah. No, I love that so much. So, Breaking through on my, but again, as a builder, you got more than one trick up your sleeve, right? You may be building a community of people that you're going to serve, but you also have an understanding of how to build a community of people who can serve you. Mm-hmm. And we're all serving, right? And that's the power of being human is that we're all serving each other. And that's what we're here for. That's why I believe we have eyes that look out and not look at ourselves. But that's another conversation. Mm. So we're built to connect with each other. And so being a connector, I learned through what, again, like I said, sets and reps. So like building that muscle of just talking to people. When you go into stores and they used to, I don't know how old the audience is, but they used to have like pins that say, ask me about this, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Because they, they're they giving you an end to finding out about a product. Right. You know, I kind of went into one of those modes where it's like, I'm just going in and asking about whatever I can ask about yeah. so that I can learn and then getting into rooms. So People will tell you like, oh, if you're the smartest person in your circle, then you need to find a new sure. circle. Yeah. But nobody teaches you how to be the dumbest person in a circle. Yeah, exactly. It's very uncomfortable <laughs> yeah. to not know as much as everybody else in the room. 
but it's a huge opportunity for learning. Totally. So for me, I actually put myself into rooms that I wouldn't normally go in. Mm. I got connected to Google because I joined this volunteer women's group that spent 15 weeks talking about everything related to being a woman. Mm-hmm. And I had to press myself to show up because everybody else was a little bit younger than me. They didn't have children. so And I had children at the time. And I had to drive into D.C. every week just to show up. So one of the ways I've been able to push through is show up. Mm. And when you show up, participate genuinely. Mm. So I would you know, like, hey, anybody got questions? I do. Hey, anybody, <laughs> anybody want to make a comment? I do. But I was actually being valuable to the moment. I wasn't just doing it just to do it. Like I was literally engaged in those moments where I was able to add value. And then people saw that I was valuable and I saw that they were valuable, right? Because this is all collaboration and mutual exchange. Fair exchange, no robbery. Mm. They're all like everybody is communing. Again, communing. That's why I love the word communing. And so that's how I was able to kind of bridge that. And then after that, you start to learn the tweaks. Like, oh, that's how you say it. Ooh, Mm. okay. I'm saying this wrong. Oh, that's... And honestly, I have some really amazing other community builders. Shout out to Claire Wiseman from Ladies Get Paid, which is a big community of women They're talking about like how to ask for raises, things like that, how to get paid for gigs, things like that. Mm. She was the person who was like, hey, what you working on? I'm like, hey, this is what I'm working on. I'm like, what you working on? She's like, this is what I've done. I'll send you my deck. That moment of her sending me her, like what her materials look like Mm. was eye-opening for me because I didn't know what to put in a fundraising deck. I didn't know what to put in a sponsorship deck. You found someone who is willing to show you what you won't find on Google. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. And she was so kind about it. And she never felt like we were kind of competing or we was, you know, it wasn't that. It was like, hey, okay, I see your building. I built something. Here's what I did. Mm-hmm. But after that, I was like, oh, this is how people do it. Yeah. Got it. And then I started moving in that direction. Yeah. I love it. I have so many more questions. We're not going to have enough. I told you we're not going to have enough time. But I love to call out a couple of the insights that you shared. One is, just being willing to ask lots of questions and being comfortable being the quote-unquote dumbest person in the room. And I love that because it's when people often miss the opportunity to gain access is they think that because they're the least knowledgeable or they're new to the space that they don't belong. When in reality, the second piece of advice you have of just genuinely participate. Like if you are willing to get through that discomfort and just start asking questions, most people are very excited to help others who are genuinely interested in participating in their community. They'll be exclusive of people that they perceive as not caring about their community and not wanting to participate. But when someone genuinely raises their hand and says, like, I want to learn more about this community and the language you use and what it means, I found that people are pretty excited because that shows them respect, it shows them value. It shows that like they're in a community that matters. Somebody cares enough to want to learn and be curious about it. So... On the topic of social capital, it sounds like you were able to really carve out social capital for yourself by finding communities where social capital existed, like there was an opportunity to capture it in these communities. And you captured it by asking questions and genuinely participating. And then you turned the social capital you built up personally, and you turned that into a community and an ecosystem where now others can start tapping into that social capital that you captured and you created it for others. And my question is, is there anything specific that you've done or advice that you'd have for others who 
want to create a community that provides social capital to people who don't have it today, right? Because it's one thing to just like create a space and say like, oh, I hope this happens organically. But I'm wondering if there are things that you can intentionally do or if there's a process or tactics that you've used that make a community that valuable that people really want to participate because they know there's social capital there. I gather and bring back and share. So I share. Sharing is definitely the key. So I may go and people know it. You know, I think a lot of times like achieving feels like you get to be the gatekeeper somewhere. Mm -hmm. I think there's a sweet spot though in between like what it means to protect your contact while also providing opportunity. That Mm -hmm. is what I feel I figured out. I figured out the sweet spot of protecting my contacts who don't necessarily want to be in front of everybody, don't want everybody contacting them and what it means to actually still provide value to the community through what those contacts have access to. And so that is a layer or a lever that I pull where it's like, okay, well, these people in this group in the community needs this. Here's where to go and get it if that's completely open and accessible. If it's not completely open and accessible, then I go and ask for permission for it to be open and accessible. Mm -hmm. Ask for permission for things to be open and accessible if they don't feel open and accessible. Mm -hmm. I think that honestly feels like the true role of a quote-unquote gatekeeper. I know it's using a bad, I know it's using a negative connotation, but Mm -hmm. if we were to think about like the pearly gates of heaven, right? It's like we know everybody, the thought is everybody's going to arrive at the gate at some point. And then the gatekeeper is not that you can't see the heaven in front of you or you know you're right there. And I think a lot of times our founders, they know they're right there at the gate to get a thing And there's just no one to be like, okay, well, let me open this part. Okay, go over there, like run through the gate. You got a few minutes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You got a few minutes to get in here and gather everything you can gather. Build Mm -hmm. your own relationship when you get in here. After that, the gate might close and I can't guarantee what's going to happen next. That's one of knowing that your relationships don't necessarily provide longevity for others. Right. Unless you are intentional about the way you connect people and letting them know that it's not necessarily... Like, you have to... I'm going to open the door for you, but you're going to have to go in here and showcase who you are in order to keep the door open for you. So I think there's, like, boundaries around what you're responsible for as a leader and a builder. Yeah. What I hold tight to being responsible for is opening the door. That's my role. Yeah. I love that. The role of the gatekeeper or you could say a community facilitator, community leader in similar ways is to like, people are coming to the gate, they're coming for help, they're coming for something. You can't just let everyone in to like a scarce resource necessarily. So it's really about how do you help them tap into it in an authentic way that also doesn't take advantage of the resource to the extent that you won't be able to continue providing it. There's a great analogy. I'm wondering if there's an example you can share of like, what is a tangible example of resource your community is looking for access to that you feel like you're a gatekeeper or facilitator of? And how did you give them access to that in an intentional and sustainable way? There's a few. One, let's say Walmart, for example. And I had, uh, we've been having like conversations with Walmart about working with us. And so one of our founders, she made it in to do a pitch. And she's like, hey, I really want to work on my pitch for Walmart. And I'm like, okay, cool. Actually, I know somebody at Walmart. And so I called the person, put them on the line, and she does the pitch. He's giving her feedback. And at the end of us, like, talking, he says, wait a minute, are you in the frozen category? And she's like, yeah. And he's like, actually, I'm your merchant. 
<laughs> and Perfect. I had no idea, right? All I know is like, I have access to this person at Walmart. And, and that moment, it was like, oh my goodness, you're pitching to the person that you would be working with eventually mm-hmm. at some point anyway. Mm-hmm. And through that connection, she was able to, not only did she get accepted into Walmart, she'll be in 250 to 500 Walmart stores in the spring. Wow. There's that. But she also was able to get confidence in how to negotiate the different fees, like, you know, uh, fees being waived in some certain instances and mm-hmm. the power of just like connecting people in higher positions to the community makes a lot of really great success stories. Mm-hmm. Another one is I would say like even working with Nike, right? So it's not even necessarily that the founders that we were working with in certain instances needed direct access to Nike. Because I think that's another that's a, another kind of myth that's out there about social capital is that like you need direct access to everybody that you can go and make an ask to. And that's not always the case. Sometimes you need a facilitator. You need a go-between because the trust is the key, right? The, an introduction alone doesn't build a relationship. So sometimes you're better off working through a relationship. So for example, part of our Nike partnership is that we create murals to shift the narrative about Black women's entrepreneurship. One of them is called Community or Nothing. And so it's right up right now. If you're in the D.C. area in Brooklyn and Northeast D.C., you can go take a look at it. It's near the Arts Walk. And so what we now we have me and a group of founders in an, a huge mural on the wall in D.C. as sponsored by Nike, right? These founders also, the work we do with Visa, like I bring in the founders to work with us to do the work that we do with Visa. Now these founders can say, I worked with Visa. Mm-hmm. Now my team can say, I worked with Nike. It, like now my makeup artist and my stylist can say, I have styled a Nike billboard, mm-hmm. right? Like the power of that is they move on and use that kind of clout around like what they have achieved just by work us working together is super powerful for them to remain sustainable. Hmm. I guess the next question that comes to mind is the scalability of it, right? Like you making these introductions personally to Walmart is great, but um, hard to sustain, right? And that makes you a facilitator. But unless the community is essentially providing that kind of access for each other, it, it's hard to scale. Similar with Nike, like you can only have so many founders in that mural. And so like I think about it for CMX as well. Like One thing that I've always struggled with If you look at the kind of access that community professionals want, a lot of the time it's around jobs, right? And so we have all these companies Mm. that are looking for hire to hire people, and we have all these people looking for jobs. I get messaged many times a week by both parties saying, like, hey, who do you know that's great for this job? Or hey, I'm looking for a job. Let me know if you see anything. And it's just impossible to manage myself. Like I become the bottleneck, I become the gatekeeper because I don't have an efficient system for scaling it, right? Like we resort to having the job board and saying like, all right, put the jobs up there so everyone can find it there and you all go there. But that's kind of the equivalent of a Google. It's like, well, everyone can see those jobs. Now I'm not providing that access that I could have. So I'm curious how you've thought about scaling that ability to give people access to these brands or resources or capital that they need. Tech. So I'm a tech, I'm a computer scientist. And so I'm a systems thinker. Like, I'm always thinking and like, how can I create systems where there are some ways that I make it personal, connections are personal, adding my personal relationships. But these personal relationships are built by what I build at Black Girl Ventures as well. So it's not even so personal. But I would say that having people build a relationship with the entity, this is why, this is where like thinking like a business, 
thinking of a business model is important mm-hmm. because you have to have the relationships built with the entity mm-hmm. so that no matter who is in charge, you or somebody else can actually come in and make the case for that. And a lot of that comes from having core values. In terms of scalability right now, we're building out a BGV supplier diversity network, a supplier network of our own, where we're building in ways to where you can make a connection request and actually request a meeting, a video meeting, mm. so that you can get to know the person. Because phone calls also don't really help with getting to know the person. Mm-hmm. But we have it where like, because people will come to us all the time like, oh, I'm looking for these founders that I can invest in. Founders are like, I'm looking for investors that are in this arena. And we would end up sitting in like spreadsheets. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, it's, I have a huge spreadsheet. It's unmanageable. <laughs> yeah, it's like, here's a spreadsheet of people we know. And so I'm like, okay, this cannot work this way. So what we're creating is almost like a mini LinkedIn, but more simple, but just for our community. I think, because another part of this is like, Making sure you don't try to be all things to all people mm-hmm. and making sure that you don't try to be all communities to all communities. Mm. So like we are, I'm clear that this is the BGV supplier network and anyone who doesn't fit within the focus of BGV won't be able to be a, supply, a part of this supplier network, whether you're an investor, mentor, founder at all. So this is specifically purely for our community. Mm-hmm. And you can find different tech platforms, platforms that you don't have to build out to do that. But I think that's the key. Again, many to many is the key. So keep foraging on many to many operations. I think that's how you use the same. Yep. Yep. I, I wonder, I, there's like something bubbling in my head around a tool that would help make these connections in a more automated way, which to be fair, also still kind of takes away that access because it, if it's less of like, I'm personally making an introduction, which carries more weight than this algorithm matched you up. but it's still better than what you can Google. But see, you got to think about it. I'm going to push against that just a little bit. Yeah. Because technically you built this company, you built this community that trusts each other. Mm -hmm. So technically you did still make the connection. Right. And that's the key is like the entity is the point, right? The people within creating the container. I'm just creating the container. Mm. And in that container, people get to, let's say sandbox, where it's just a better way to put it. I'm creating a sandbox. You can come and play in it. Now, I'm just going to help you systematize the way you connect in my sandbox. Mm -hmm. This is not me connecting everybody in the world. I'm not setting out to be a recruiter. right? That's not what I set out to be. I'm a community builder. True. And so, therefore, the resources and tools that I I give to my community have to work for my community and the way they work. And I think that's the difference. I like that. Like, sure, you can have this automated system. And and sure, if I just posted that on Twitter or something public and anyone can sign up, then it's not very personal. But if the inputs are essentially curated by the community that you've built, then that trust carries over into that system. That's right. I love it. Well, I'm going to have to cut myself off and we're going to move into our rapid fire question round. But we covered so much good stuff here. What you appreciate, appreciates showing up in communities and asking genuine questions and participating. Communities provide what Google can't. Ooh, yeah. that should be a tagline. There it is. Yeah. Comedians provide what Google can. Yeah. Yes. And what else we got? We got scaling community by build, using tech to, to be able to scale access in that way. And it matters what the inputs are. So, so much good stuff here. But we're going to move into our rapid fire question now and see if we can extract some more wisdom for you in this last few minutes here. You ready? Okay, I'm ready. Let's do it. All right. Some of it's wisdom. Some of it's just fun. 
including this first question, which is, if you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would that food be? Corn on the top. <laughs> Elote, to be exact, which is Mexican oh, corn. Oh, I was going to say, it's so good. I love corn. Mexican corn is the best ever. All right, good one. I think you could survive on corn. I'm pretty sure it's like all the nutrients <laughs> you need. All right, next, what's your favorite book to give as a gift to others or to recommend to others? The Four Agreements. Ooh, great one. I love that one. Yeah, The Four Agreements. I mean, if you're a community builder and tribe by Seth Golden, it's a good mm-hmm. one. Another great one. But yeah, Four Agreements. I read that like once every three months. You have to do that. Yeah. You know, you have to just remind yourself to just like stay objective, stay curious. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually, it's, I was literally thinking this past week that I, I need to read it again. I need to, it's like, it's a book that brings me back to earth. And it's so short, you can read it in a day. So great recommendation. All right, next one. What's a company in your community that you're really excited about right now that you want to give a shout out to? Oh my goodness, there's so many that's dangerous to ask me that. I know, I'm asking you to choose your favorite baby. It's not fair. I know. What I'll say, I'm excited about Agua Bonita, which is a woman, who her name is Kayla Consignetta. And these are beverages that you reuse uh, like lightly bruised fruit like fruit that Mm -hmm. the grocery stores won't sell so it recycles fruit and creates nice water fruit water off of them and it actually comes from latinx culture and Mm. um, they're called agua frescas right and so she's figured a way the name of her company is agua bonita and she's awesome amazing i want to try that now awesome i gotta ask like, what's the one minute version of the private eye story? I am a computer scientist. And as the internet was becoming more popular in terms of like social media and Google and things like that, I just knew the internet. I just knew how to use computers better than <laughs> And so I called myself a private eye and I would like be like, oh, I can go and find people. <laughs> you were a professional internet sleuther. Yeah, yeah. One of my friends, the first troll, I guess you could say. One of my, yeah. <laughs> one of my friends' mom's needed to find somebody who owed her money. And basically all I did was like find them like in the yellow pages, white pages online and then like contact their neighbor. Mm. So I like found their neighbor and I contacted their neighbor and I said, hey, you know, I'm looking for such and such, you know, have you seen them? They're like, yeah, they over there. You want their phone number? And they just gave me all the information. <laughs> and then I connected the person who was looking for them to them. That's incredible. You are truly a hustler. Yeah. I love it. Yes. All right. Next question. What's a go-to community engagement tactic or conversation starter that you like to use in your communities? What do you care about? In DC, people always ask, what do you do? What Mm. do you do? What do you do? Oh, that's interesting. What do you do? I got so tired of the question, what do you do? I realized it draws distance. Mm. It doesn't drive connection. So I started asking, what do you care about? What do you care about? And that you could answer that any way you want. You can tell me what your job is. You can literally tell me what you actually do, like outside of your job, what you care about. Mm-hmm. But usually people find themselves working in spaces where they care about something related to that particular workplace. Love it. Do you use that in community spaces as well? If you're like posting in a group or something? Yeah, I do. Because it kind of what you care about ebbs and flows from day to day. Mm. What do you care about today is an interesting question. A different one. Oh, what do you care about today? I like that. Mm-hmm. Specific. All right. Next question. Who in the world of community would you most like to take out to lunch? You. <laughs> Seth Godin would be Seth Godin. I really would love to just, I just enjoy the way he thinks about things. Yeah. 
Mr. He's a big one. He's someone special. I had the very big honor of interviewing him finally on the podcast and in our event recently. And it was like dream come true. Oh, wow. Awesome. Tribes was definitely one of the first books that got me into this world. So mm, congratulations on interviewing him. That's cool. I'll let him know that you gave him a shout out here and maybe we can uh, fly you up to the Hudson Valley to hang out with him. Oh, that'd be cool. That'd be dope. Also, I have a show too, so he can come on my show. That'd be great. Mm, all right. We'll run it by him. Okay. What's a community product? Speaking of tech to scale community and stuff like that, what's a product you wish existed? Oof. Lord, I wish there were a product that was an easy way to create a video, like a wiki video library of learning Hmm. where like everybody could kind of maybe it wouldn't be like an Instagram, but maybe there's like a place where it's like whatever you learn today, you can actually just go record it and just put it up in a gallery for people to listen to, Hmm. for the community to listen to. Right. So, you know that you're going to give this piece of knowledge to that community. You can just pop up your phone, record it and then post it to that community, but it becomes a a gallery versus like trying to scroll down a timeline to find the video that that one person put up about that one thing. Mm. Like instead of it being that, it would be more... Like it turns it into a knowledge base. Yeah. Yeah. Almost like a private YouTube in a way. Yeah. Yeah. That anyone can post to. Interesting. I like it. All right. Let's build it. That's our next project. (laughs) I know we're not busy. Let's go. All right. Next question. What's the weirdest community you've ever been a part of? Weirdest? I thought about this question. I'm like, I don't know of a weird community that I've been a part of. I'm surprised. Like, you did poetry. You had a teepee in your living room. You're a private eye. You must have a weird community in there somewhere. I mean, because I think like the way... I guess poetry is kind of weird. I was going to say like the way I think about the word weird is like, yeah, as poets, we are pretty much weirdos. It could be like quirky. But like weird is also the new cool. Yeah. Yeah, like quirky, like... Okay, yeah. So definitely the poetry community. Oh my goodness. Off the beaten path. (laughs) So many tentacles, so many different personalities. The poetry community would definitely be the most eccentric. All right, well, quick follow-up question there. What's one thing you learned from leading community in the world of poetry that you still apply to your community building today? Hmm... I wish I could, I don't know how to name it. Mm. I would just say how to move and motivate people. But like, it's not, I guess, because there's some, there's like everything I learned from building community and poetry is what I use today. Everything, like how to like put the systems in place very simply, like simple systems equal sustainability. Mm. (laughs) Like that's what I learned. And like, if you can package it simply and get enough people to understand it, Nine times out of 10, they will do it and they will show up for it Mm. if they believe in it. So like, I know, belief, keeping it simple, building Mm. trust. Is there something from poetry itself that you feel like you understand how it moves people or moves communities? The use of language. Mm. The use of language in showing instead of telling. So I think that when you're a poem and you're studying your craft, when you're a poet and you study your craft and you work with different writers and you're trying to like hone in on what to do, I used to always have a friend who's a writer who would say, show it, don't tell it. Mm-hmm. And that use of language, like there's so many available words to use. And this is why like when people say things that are terrible, it's kind of like out of all the words available to use, those are the ones. <laughs> you had other words. <laughs> yeah, it's like those are the ones that you chose. There's like so many more words you can use. So I think that poetry taught me that I could use language and words 
in so many directions and ways to actually help people to like easily communicate with people. So I would say it's the, the balance of like being an artist and being a computer scientist is my mm. secret sauce. Yeah. The ability to think in, like I said, energy and communing and language, but also be able to be systematic and profit driving. That's my sweet spot. Yeah. That's a rare combination and probably also why you struggle as an employee. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> as have I. As have I. I can relate 100%. All right. Last question. If you were to find yourself on your deathbed today and you had to condense all of your life lessons into one piece of advice for the rest of the world on how to live, what would that advice be? Be all that you are as soon as possible. Alicia Wilson, she is the she's the VP of Economic Development at John Hopkins University and John Hopkins Medical Center. And she gave me this advice, I guess now two, three years ago. Like, be all that you are as soon as possible. Mm, I really, really like that. What does that mean to you? Well, I mean, think about like right now as I shift my name from my, my name is Shelly Bell, as I was born with, and I have a different middle name. But I'm shifting my name to Shelly Omilade Bell, mm. which Shelly means the metal on the ledge. Omilade means the water that clears the path. And Bell means sound. It's a sound, which all is geared toward like driving people and driving change and signals and pathways, which I think is my whole life's purpose. I am not the person at my mother birthed. Mm. I've evolved into so many different layers of me. And so being called by the same name doesn't resonate in the same way. That mm. it used to, especially because like even being a public person, like that name is tied to misconceptions of who I am now. And not in a bad way. Like I never had any, you know, negative things happen. But just in general, like a person, Shelly Bell, like solely the name Shelly Bell was a person who was figuring it out, tripping, stumbling, pivoting. And I would say now Omilade is a person who gets it and mm. gets how to move in it and gets that being fluid. It's probably one of the most important things that you can be. Hmm. Nobody looks at the river like it's pivoting, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> like, you know, it's just flowing. You know, mm-hmm. we don't look at the ocean that way. So that would be one of the examples of like being all that I am. In mm-hmm. being all that I am and all that I have learned, I feel new. I love that. And I can definitely say you feel like somebody who knows who they are and is proud of who they are. It definitely flows. Thank you. Do you think you created who you are today or did you find who you are? Oof. A bit of both. Yeah. Because I think GR always existed. Mm-hmm. And that was the finding. But it took creativity and creating things to truly, truly know her. Mm. Like to truly, truly get to the core of who Omilade is. I had to get creative under like using my creative and creativity, my vision and my curiosity to move some of the blocks in my way that would maybe not allow me to see myself being hidden, you know, to see the hidden parts of myself. So that's why I think it is a finding a bit of soul searching, but in order to truly like soul search, you got to get creative because like just on the surface, there's so many things that feel like they're blocking you on the surface. There are so many things that feel unclear on the surface. Society has so much say in what you hear, see on the surface. Beneath like the layers in between the lines, there's more. Well said. You've given me a whole lot to think about. (laughs) I love that. Look, mission accomplished. There you go. Hopefully it's (laughs) the same for all the listeners too. Omi, Omi Lade, Shelly Bell, really appreciate you being here and sharing your journey and your experience. Like I said, it, it flows. You're someone who clearly has a a clear path that you're on 
You know who you are. You're having an incredible impact for a lot of people and you're setting a really incredible example of how to build community. I know there's going to be thousands of people who hear this episode and take what you've taught and run with it and build more communities that provide social capital and access to people who don't have it today. And I know I've learned a lot that we're going to try to bring to our own community. So just really grateful for you, the work you've done and for you taking the time to come and hang out with me today. Thank you. I appreciate you. This is great. Lastly, where can people go to find you and continue to follow you? Oh, yeah. You can find me at the world of Omi. O-M-I. So the world of O-M-I. Omi.com. The world of Omi on Twitter. Uh, the world of Omi on Facebook. And I am Shelly Bell on Instagram. I'm on Instagram most, to be honest. Uh, so <laughs> I am Shelly Bell is a really great place to follow me to see like all the things I'm up to and catch a few jokes here and there and reels and dances and all of that. Love it. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. Thanks everybody for listening. We'll see you next time. The Masters of Community is brought to you by CMX, the world's largest network of community professionals, and Bevy, the enterprise platform powering communities for the world's leading brands. This episode was edited and produced by Finesse Media. Music was provided by Seiji Cataldo and design was provided by Virginia DeMarco. If you enjoyed this episode, please drop us a review in iTunes. It's a huge help for helping us get this podcast in front of more people. We really, really appreciate it. And share it with your networks. The more people that learn about the power of community, the better. We have a new episode every week. So until then, thank you so much for listening and see you next time.